Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Last December, the United States hosted its second U.S.-Africa summit. It was a successful undertaking as far as summitry goes. 49 heads of state and delegates attended, plus the chairman of the African Union Commission, Mr. Musa Faki. Several resolutions came of it, covering a wide spectrum of areas, including human rights, security and defense, trade and commerce, science and technology, good governance and democracy, human rights, youth engagement, and the announcement of the President's Advisory Council on African Diaspora Engagement in the United States. The African diaspora in the United States is substantial and spans all segments of the economy and professional life, from the taxi driver to NASA, to Silicon Valley, to Hollywood, and to the White House. There's no part of the American society that has not benefited from this African diaspora. Joining me today on Into Africa to discuss the various facets of African talent and how to best bridge the entrepreneurial drive of this diaspora and the best resources of the United States and elsewhere is Claude Grunitsky. Claude Grunitsky wear many hats, so to speak. He's a journalist, editor, and entrepreneur. He's best known as founder and editor-in-chief of the lifestyle publication Trace, an international fashion and music title, and is a co-founder of the Trace TV network, which is like the MTV and a similar platform for music across the African diaspora, from Brazil all the way to Congo, from Cape Town to Morocco. He runs True Africa, a media platform championing young African voices, and True, a content marketing agency. And he also is involved with the Equity Alliance, which is an investment fund focused on diverse venture capital fund managers and entrepreneurs. He also presents the podcast series Limitless Africa. In 2012, Grunitsky's career was the subject of a Harvard Business School case study, which is taught in the Power and Influence MBA class. Good morning, Claude, and welcome to Into Africa. Good morning, Mbemba. So great to see you again. After all these years, we've known each other two decades now. It's wonderful to be with you. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So welcome. The first time, actually, we came into contact, you had asked me if we could publish some of my pieces in Trace magazine. So you, looking at your background, have exactly the profile that a lot of our youth in Africa and in the diaspora, but also a lot of us in the professional life who look up to to say, what are we missing? There's so much resources in the world. I just spoke about the Africa Summit. How does the African creatives on both sides of the Atlantic tap into this? Well, I'm glad you started there because I want to go back to why I've been doing all this, why I started Trace all those 25 years ago, and why I'm still continuing some of that work with my media platform, True Africa, and the films and podcasts and articles and videos that we produce. I have spent my entire adult life trying to harness the creativity of Africans in Africa, of the Afro diaspora, of Afro descendants all over the world. And what I found growing up in Togo before I moved to Paris as a teenager was that Africans were very much 
stuck in silos and very narrow confines of nationalism as opposed to learning from each other and building bridges between various African cultures around the world. And I try to break down some of these barriers and create a borderless world where black people from around the world could learn from each other and actually empower each other through creativity, through innovation, through entrepreneurship, through collaboration, through cross-fertilization across many different industries. And so right now, the reason I'm really hopeful is that finally I'm seeing this transcultural, transcontinental collaboration taking shape, whether it's in the form of music. Everywhere I go now, people are listening to Afrobeats music. Everybody knows Burner Boy. Everybody knows Whiskey. And this is music that gets listened to all over. And African creativity is being embraced. And we're no longer in a situation where African creativity is considered inferior to the dominant African-American entertainment and innovation that has shaped Black culture globally. So we can go deeper into that, but this really has been my life's work and it keeps me up at night and I feel that actually the needle is beginning to move. So at 24, you undertake this big enterprise, Trace Magazine, that you launch. How is it received and what are some of the obstacles that you face given this goal that you have of a borderless world, particularly in the creative and finance space there and the cross-footed? How is it received? Are you welcome? Is this an idea that you find the world is ready for or do you have to fight for it? That's another great question, Mwemba. And I have to say, if I go back 25 years when I was starting Trace, and really thinking of this platform as a way to tell these stories and to champion black voices all over the world, I found that the audience that was most receptive to my work was in the African diaspora. I found that a lot of people in London, in New York, in Chicago, in LA were very, very receptive to what I was doing with Trace Magazine back in the day. And it wasn't until we launched Trace TV as what you call an African MTV that we started getting more interest from Africans on the continent. And the reason Trace TV became so popular early on after we launched it actually in 2003, which was 20 years ago, was because initially we were showing a lot of music videos that were coming from American hip hop, American R&B. And that is something that was interesting to me because I felt that a lot of young Africans were very attracted to what was happening in America, but were not embracing their own homegrown African culture, whether it was in music or film or fashion or other creative industries. But what's happening now, 20 years into this, is that now the cross-fertilization that I spoke about is starting to take shape and Americans all over, whether it's African-Americans or even white Americans are now starting to discover African films, whether it's Nollywood or Afrobeats that I mentioned earlier. And once again, it's become a real exchange. And I feel like that's what's driving me closer to my ultimate goal, which was to continue the work that Marcus Garvey had started more than a century ago 
with his idealistic vision of the black star and reuniting black people from all over the world around kind of shared affinities, whether it was cultural affinities or economic affinities or political affinities, it was a way to bring all of us together and create something that would be as powerful as what happened with the Jewish diaspora around the world. Very fascinating there. I hear a lot of revolutionary streak in what you just said. Marcus Garvey, <laughs> Jewish diaspora, and so on. But I want to stay a little bit on that first experience of yours launching Trace magazine. The idea, as I say, I use the term revolutionary, and I use it not necessarily in the political sense of the word, although there's a ramification to that. But just being in that space and saying, look, you talk about black voice, meaning African voice. The world was already familiar with the African-American, the Afro-Brazilian and so on voices. African voice was there, very aware, aware of it as well. But you are trying to bridge that gap. So when you go to get financing or you're going to present yourself, I mean, you are the editor has this idea that you need an entire enabling environment to support you, to wrap its arms around your project. That process, I'm still grappling with it. How were you received? How was the idea received? Where were the pushbacks that you got and how did you surmount those? I can see the second layer to your question and I'm gonna be very honest with you because I'm taking myself back to those years of what I would just call hardship mixed with hope. And what happened in the beginning around the time that I launched Trace 25 years ago was that I was deeply hopeful that Trace could actually become a very important platform for, as I said, championing black voices all over the world. But I really hung my hat on the power of hip hop and how hip hop could actually transition from being a subculture in the margins of kind of New York society to become a global kind of mainstream phenomenon, which it actually ended up becoming. And when I was struggling to pay my bills, to make payroll, to just stay afloat by publishing a monthly magazine, I had actually approached different investors, starting with African investors. As a native son of Togo, I thought that Africans would want to support me and the work that I was doing with this grand vision around Trace magazine. And I found that I was rejected by every single African investor that I approached. And it wasn't until I met an African-American mergers and acquisition banker, investment banker called Ray McGuire, who actually invested in my company, an African-American man who believed in this Togolese entrepreneur and really put me on the map by allowing me to have a little bit more capital to make my dreams come true, that trade started taking off. And then on the back of that, I found a little bit of stability because I was also able to raise funding from a hip hop group, the founder of a hip hop group called the Wu-Tang Clan. So Riza, the founder of the Wu-Tang Clan, actually ended up funding Trace in the early days when I was really struggling. And on the back of having built really strong relationships with these rappers and R&B singers like Alicia Keys and so on, that I was able to raise $15 million in funding from Goldman Sachs, which is when Trace became a proper media company and that we decided to launch the television network Trace TV as this kind of European MTV focusing on African-American music on the African continent and also in Europe where we were very popular. So it was really interesting that Africans actually never really supported me financially. And if I'm going to be really honest, even after I proved myself as a media entrepreneur with Trace, I decided to launch True Africa with a much more 
Africa focus, as its name indicates, and shifting the center of gravity to the African continent as opposed to New York, where I was based. And I have to be honest, I started the same thing, the same kind of dog and pony show with different investors in Africa. And once again, all the African investors rejected my business proposition around true Africa. And the funding that I got was once again from the US in the form of Google, which ended up investing in true Africa. So my story from a business perspective and from a media enterprise perspective has been a story of disappointment when it comes to raising capital in Africa, but a story of hope when it came to actually telling my story to American investors and African-American investors who actually could see that this vision around trace and transcultural styles and ideas and the Afro diaspora and Pan-Africanism could actually be something really big for the broader African diaspora. So two points there, two threads. One is it seems like the Africans, uh, we're talking a segment of investors here, the African financier does not necessarily see the value add of African product, in this case, cultural and others. But then B, at the same time, we get people outside the continent, African-Americans, whites and others who actually see that bridge and are able to walk that bridge to finance project that they see value with or within. Is that to be the right thing? And if so, how do we then mobilize African financiers and investors to starting investing in what is home, what is actually homegrown and not always looking for the pie in the sky? Because this is, this is a problem across many sectors, not just in the creative sp- sectors that you're working in. I'm going to be really provocative here in stating my own opinion, and this is just my own opinion, and I don't want to speak for every other Black or African entrepreneur. The reality is, I don't believe that high net worth Africans or captains of African industry or very successful Africans respect creatives in the way that they should be respected. I don't believe that they're willing to fund the creative industries. I don't believe that they see the value in the creative industries and in the ability of Africans to tell the African story and the importance of Africans telling the African story and the necessity of Africans telling the African story as opposed to just promoting Western narratives about Africa. I don't really believe that they value that, which is why they have not funded it. And if I look at my own example of being a Togolese in New York and getting funding from Goldman Sachs, getting funding from Ray McGuire, who was the former vice chair of Citigroup, and getting funding from Google and so on. I can even take it a step further when I was looking for funding for my podcast, Limitless Africa, that you mentioned. The funding came from two U.S. foundations and also from the U.S. Department of State in D.C., where you are. So it was a little bit ironic for me to see that here I am promoting an African narrative and the importance of telling African stories in African media and finding that actual Africans who had the means were not supportive and finding that I always had to go to Europe or mostly America to get the funding. That was a real learning process for me. And as opposed to being bitter about it, my disappointment, I just harnessed that into just more resilience. And I'm hopeful that hopefully the tide will turn and in the future, we will have more Africans who believe in the importance of telling our own story as opposed to having other people tell our story. Why is that that these African high net worth African individuals who are typically well-traveled, very savvy, tapped into all kinds of networks, 
somehow miss the value of the African telling their own stories? I think that a lot of it is linked to what I call self-hate, and I'm sorry to use those kinds of expressions. It's self-hate and it's lack of solidarity and even lack of vision. And I would say that because sometimes these financiers, these owners of mining companies, these industrialists, because of my relatively high profile as an African from the diaspora who's done well in media, they would ask me to meet them and they would want to meet in London in their big apartment in Mayfair, or they would want to meet at a hotel on the Avenue Montaigne in Paris. And next thing you know, they're shopping on the Avenue Montaigne, going to Dior and Louis Vuitton and all those and spending money and buying real estate and clothing in Paris. And that is a good use of their funds. So everybody can do whatever they want to do with their money. But here I was asking for investment, not free money, investment into our African identity and the next generation of Africans discovering who they are, discovering who their ancestors were, learning about how they can build their own future and empower themselves and seeing that these captains of industry couldn't care less and all they were interested in was consumerism and making the most of that Western lifestyle. And that was extremely disappointing to me as somebody who's always held on to these ideals of pan-Africanism and active solidarities across borders. I believe that it's difficult to change it with people from our generation, which some people call Generation X. I believe the only hope is with young Africans and changing those mindsets around what young Africans consider to be useful, what young Africans consider to be about nation building, what young Africans consider to be important to their own identity. And if we look at the demographics of the continent, we all know that 60% of the population is under the age of 25. I believe that we need to help to educate these young Africans on the importance of them taking control of their narrative, of their African narrative, and finding a way to disseminate that worldwide in the way that some Nigerians have done it very well. You know, I have a lot of respect for Nigerians in the diaspora because they move with pride and they move with confidence. If we look at literature, for instance, you know, the work that Chimamanda has done across the world to help to redefine Black identity, African identity, the identity of people that she calls American Africans versus African Americans. If we look at, again, the work of musicians like Wizkid, you know, coming out of Lagos and how that music is spreading all over. If we look at some of these films that are coming out of Nollywood and how people are consuming them in India, in Latin America, in Mexico, I feel that these Nigerians have done a great, great job of telling African stories from a truly authentic African perspective and spreading those stories so that people around the world could consume them. I wish other Africans could take that lead as well because the dominant culture now coming out of Africa that's being exported is really coming from Lagos and that metropolis, which some people now consider to be the capital of Africa. This raises the question of enabling environment. So the Nigerians have done well. Before the Nigerians, or alongside the Nigerians, the generation just above us 
the Papa Wembas of the world, the Fela Kuti and others. It was the best tremendous challenge for them. They had world recognition. The names were known, but there were issues of royalties. There were issues of the space they worked in. We see this often uh, musicians, particularly since you mentioned musicians, who had a great career but never had the royalties or the wherewith to show that they had that great career. With the youth today, with the writer, Chimamanda, of course, is in many ways an exception. And we all are behind her, supporting her, but also emulating her in the way that she's kind of blazing that path for many of the young, the young professional coming. But the challenge remains, right, for a young creative in Malawi or in Zambia. You have some emerging musician like Sampa, the great out of Zambia, and many others. You have the Fali Pupa of the world who are carving their own space out there. For those who are not known, those are that we don't know, you and I are still don't know about them. What do we need to do create that enabling environment, the legal structure of it, so they actually, when they make it, are not being exploited. They have the name out there, but not the resources that go with it. And then be bridging that gap. I've been thinking about this so much. I've been writing about this so much. I've been organizing workshops around this. And I have to say that the first thing we need to do is to learn from the mistakes of the previous generation that you mentioned, the people who came before us. You mentioned Papa Wemba. If we look at Fela Kuti, for instance, who many people consider to be one of the most important musicians of the 20th century, not just African musicians, but musicians in general. You know, I was able, when I was doing Trace, to secure the very last interview with Fela Kuti. And it was an interview that I secured because I sent the Nigerian singer, Keziah Jones, to interview him shortly before he died in 1997. This was when I was starting out with Trace. And what was so sad to me in following that story for the past 25 years is that the heirs, his children, they actually ended up selling that intellectual property which they no longer own the publishing that is owned, that was created by their father and these thousands of songs that he created that would be so, so valuable now. This is really valuable intellectual property that belongs to future African heritage that should have stayed in Africa. Same thing with Miriam Makeba. I spent a lot of time talking with her granddaughter, Zinzi Lee, about how we can help to save a little bit of that intellectual property so that she and her child can actually benefit from the intellectual property that was created by her late great-grandmother, Mira Makeba. And this is the story of so many African musicians. The same could be said for visual artists, figurative painters, coming out of your own country, the D Democratic Republic of Congo, all these incredible figurative painters, and I've met many of them, and some of them are struggling financially, even though they created works that were acquired and resold in the secondary market for hundreds of thousands of dollars. They have not benefited and neither have their children. So to answer your question, I believe that the first thing we need to do is educate this next generation of African creatives on the importance of owning your intellectual property, of marketing your work while retaining control of your work and finding ways to license your work by still being an owner. And I always say that ownership is freedom. And until we can explain to the young generation that they need to own their work, 
they will never be free. In that case, there is space for the government to play a role. What is that space and what can be done for that? I mean, Jamaica comes to mind. Jamaica has been able to capitalize on its creative industry, even its sport, right? It's, it's an entire spectrum of, of talent that we're talking about. Creating that space, is that an imperative? I don't believe in African governments and their ability to solve this problem. And I say that because I can't tell you the number of African heads of state who invited me over for discussions around how do we create cultural movements in their country. I've done this in Senegal, I've done this in my own country, Togo, I've done this in Ghana, I've done it in so many countries. And I feel like these African governments are totally clueless as to the actual value of their intellectual property and of the movements that are emanating out of Africa. And unfortunately, the exceptions, the few ministers or head of state who really get it, I don't feel that they have enough support within the kind of a broader continent to be able to implement changes that will benefit an entire generation of new creatives coming out of Africa, whether they're working, working in fashion or in music, as I mentioned, or film, or even just kind of developing technologies to actually distribute through digital means this African creativity. And I've given up on governments solving this problem. And I believe that the only people who can really solve it are young African entrepreneurs who create platforms that will empower the next generation of creatives while allowing them to retain ownership of their masters, of their intellectual property, as I said, and quite frankly, of their future. Very good. So let's, let's mind the gap. So many gaps there that you've identified. You've been in this space for the last 25 years or so? Yes, 20, yeah, this is my, my 25th year. If we gave you a magic wand, how do you bridge that gap or those gaps? Because there are many. I would create a fund that would be perhaps similar to, in spirit to what the Millennium Challenge Corporation actually did, uh, starting with the U.S. and getting the African Union and African governments to also participate in this fund and also getting funding from the European Union and other global South uh, nations who want to participate in creating maybe a multi-billion dollar fund, perhaps a, a, a $10 billion fund, for instance, that would look at finding ways to bring various members of the diaspora together with Africans who were born and raised in Africa and invest in for-profit ventures that will actually help to disseminate this African creativity globally. And I would do this by just also including a few members of various governments who actually get it and help them to shape policy to make sure that these creations are protected in the right way. And this would obviously play into their own strategic interests, but it would not be dictated necessarily by U.S. foreign policy or European foreign policy or any of the other foreign policy that would have a very narrow reading of what this should accomplish. This would really be about helping African creatives to actually export their creativity and actually make money from digital platforms that are existing, that everybody consumes, and that money would go back to Africa and in a virtual circle, fund the next generation of creatives. And so that fund, if it were 5 billion or 10 billion in future, maybe in 30 years could grow into a $100 billion fund that would actually be the first port of call for young Africans who are looking to create 
incredible work, whether it's paintings, whether it's fashion designs, whether it's music, whether it's documentaries or whatever it is that allows us to tell our African story from our perspective with proper funding that also means that it would be kind of better production values, which actually makes it easier to export and distribute around the world. On that note, Claude Grunitsky, we appreciate you. Thank you for joining us today. It looks like it's a long road ahead for creatives in Africa. It is, but we have to start somewhere, right? And so it starts one idea and with a few enablers and people who can actually be catalysts in making this happen. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Claude. Thank you so much, Mvemba. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. So long.